I've been given a task this morning to bring God's word to us, and the topic I'm going to deal with is what is a healthy church? Like you and me, we live in Uganda, I live in Nairobi, I live in Africa, you live in Africa. In where I pastor in Nakuru, every after 200 meters, we have a church. The stretch that leads you to Nakuru, the moment you get into Nakuru, you can count 20, between 20 to 25 churches in a radius of two kilometers. And so when you come to Nakuru, we have a big billboard. Nakuru, the city of God. And so many people have already told us, you guys, you are blessed. You have a billboard in Nakuru, the city of God. It's until you get into Nakuru and visit all these churches, talk to the pastors of these churches, talk to people in Nakuru who call themselves Christians, that's when you realize the state of the church in Nakuru. And, uh, you know, you know we have come from an election. I know you, you follow Kenya stuff, isn't it? And now we have a president who is a pastor, as the people now are calling him. I will let that you to, to decide or to know whether he's a pastor or not at your own good time. All right. <clears throat> so, before we get into the market waters to look at what is a healthy church, I want us, first of all, to define what a church is. Before we do that, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, this morning you have gathered us together as your people. You have brought us to feed on your word, to encourage one another, Lord, to spur one another to good works and love to remind each other as shepherds of the sheep how we ought to shepherd in order, Lord, that we may glorify you and the hearts and the souls of your people will be nourished. Lord, we pray as we look into your word, may your spirit impart us with this truth. Cause us to be keen to listen well. Help us, Lord, to take to heart that which we are listening, Lord. It might be new to our hearts. It might be a reminder. Lord, we pray in all ways that you are doing to us. Help us to submit to the truth of the gospel. Lord, we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we want to define what a church is. And as we define what a church is, I want us to go to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. And see how does the Bible describe the church. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says this, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenus. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 
in verse 2, what Paul do, does is to define to us, if we are going to ask ourselves, what is the church? Paul helps us to understand by the will of the Holy Spirit who led him to write the scriptures that the church, here he refers to the church as saints. Saints, and he says, they are saints who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and our Lord. If we look at church as a universal body. Our God. So, who are saints? When Paul uses the word saints, he refers to Christians. He's not referring to any kind of category of people. He's not referring to what the Roman Catholics refer to saints. Those who have died and after a period of time, they are given and they are, they are, they are sort of uh, remembered and they are ushered into saintship. And that's not what Paul is dealing with here. Paul is saying saints, he's using the word saints, to refer to Christians who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. If you read 1 Peter 1. Who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Who have been called out of the world by the Father. And have been sanctified to be children of God. Actually, here he uses the word past tense, sanctified, not sanctification. When you read the Bible, Colossians 3 reminds us there's a progressive work of sanctification going on in the life of a Christian. But Paul here uses the word past tense, sanctified, a done deal work. These are people before God, they are loved, their status before God is that they belong to God, they are God's children, they are on their way to heaven. The Bible in the New Testament, Paul, again, in 1 Timothy 3.15, telling Timothy how people should conduct themselves, he refers to the church, again, as God's household. God's dwelling place, where God dwells. Revelation 1, when John explains to us the church, he reminds us, Jesus, he gives us a, an image or a picture of Jesus in the midst of his church. God is present in his church, not as a building built with stones and hay, but people who are redeemed. People, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Meaning, when we gather, like we are gathered here today, Anyone outside Christ, he is not part of the church of Christ. On Sunday when we gather and we have multitudes in the midst of us, anyone who does not confess Jesus as Lord, he is not part of the church of God. Because we know what we do. You know, people come on Sunday and everyone is what? A Christian, isn't it? Praise be to God, and everyone says amen, and we are like, these are all Christians. And we tend to look at Christianity as what? A consistent commitment to come to church. As long as somebody is committed to come to church, he is a Christian. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The church are God's people. But also Paul reminds us here in 1 Corinthians, they are God's people in 
Corinth. They belong to God. They are in Christ. But they are in a location. God's church is scattered all over the world in different, different locations. We have God's people in Gulu. We have God's people in Nakuru. We have God's people in America, in China, everywhere. And that's why we have the 13 letters to the churches, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Philippi, to the church where? In Thessalonica, to the church in Rome. These are God's people scattered all over, loved by God, sanctified by the Spirit, kept until Jesus comes to take them home. To such people, God has called and raised men to shepherd his church. Your number one priority as a pastor is this people of God. These people washed by the blood of Jesus, loved by God, kept by God. That is your priority. So how does a health church look like? We are all coming from churches. I'm assuming we are all pastors, okay? How does a health church look like? How do people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus look like? Does the Bible has answers? How should we know the church is the church? All we are left to figure it out by ourselves. Let's turn our eyes in Acts 2. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Acts 2. And we are going to do this in a questioning way to answer various questions. So the first question we want to answer is, how does one become part of the church of God? How does one become part of the church of God? When you look at Acts 2, we want to read every passage, but we are all acquainted with verse 1 to all your way, verse 13. The Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost. As Jesus had promised in Acts 1, as Jesus had promised in John 16, I will send a helper. And in Acts 1.18, he tells them, don't tarry, don't get out of Jerusalem yet until the Spirit has come upon you. And when he comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the rest of the world. Acts 2 verse 1 to 13, the Spirit has come. God's, Jesus' promise has been fulfilled. And as it is fulfilled, the disciples speak in tongues. I don't get into that debate now. <laughs> they speak in tongues, and as they are speaking, those who are listening to them, they say these men are drunk. It's just 9 a.m. in the morning, and these men are already drunk. We all now say when you find a guy drunkard in the morning, what do we, do we always say? What's wrong with the people? It's sort of like we are thinking, it's good to be drunk in the evening, not in the morning. Despite the fact the Bible says, 
Drunkenness is what? Is sin. Peter stands up to defend or to remind those who are hearing why what was happening was happening. And we are reminded as he does that, or as these men are filled with the Spirit of God, and as they are talking, they are not talking things that are not hard. They are talking actually in a language that those who are there in the audience, they were able to understand them. You read these words in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation and heaven, on heaven. And at, this, at, at, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because of each one was hearing them speak in his own what? Language. So probably if you were there, if they actually was there, would have heard. Okay? If, if the American was there, would have heard. The, the, the one in Uganda would have heard. Languages that belonged to people. And what were they saying? They had them doing what? Verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these people speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Perth, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, tongue languages, the might works of God. So they are not speaking in the things they can't understand. Peter seizes that opportunity immediately. As Brother Ed was preaching in the morning, Peter was not a guy to keep quiet. You can even see him here. He seizes the opportunity immediately. And we read verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying no, to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking, they are filled with wine. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through prophet Joel. What is Peter saying? The fulfillment of the coming of the Spirit has been accomplished. God is faithful. What he promised to bring has come. And Peter says he's going to do that in reminding them, taking them to Joel 2, 28 to 32. To tell them this was prophesied by prophet Joel. That this will happen. What will happen? And in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male servants and the female servants. In those days I will pour my spirit and they will prophesy. 
and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What Peter is saying is this in simple. Salvation has dawned even to those who are not part of the ship of Israel. The sign for that is the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is what Joel said. It's not what we say today, isn't it? For us, the Spirit continues to come, isn't it? He comes every Sunday. The fulfillment is yet to, to be accomplished, isn't it? He comes every Sunday. He comes every meeting we meet, isn't it? And we, we have to speak in tongues. Peter is saying here, the Spirit has come. Salvation has dawned on God's people. And that's why he accompanied by saying, those who shall call upon the name of God shall be saved. Quoting what? Or referring to again, we read in Romans 10. If you believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Salvation is now opened to all people from all countries. Gentiles can now come in. This is the sheep that Jesus refers to in John. I have another sheep. And I have to bring that sheep in. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel, as Peter proclaims it from the Old Testament, he shows us, even in, the, in other places when he quotes David, he's showing us this one thing. The gospel is proclaimed to show what God has promised in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. We don't need to get another sign. We don't need anything else. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. The only way to enter heaven is by faith in Christ Jesus. Peter does a great exposition here. And as he does that, look at verse 22. He reminds them about this Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man uttered to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that did, did God, God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus... The one who fulfills all scriptures. Luke 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter does a summary of the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This Jesus was given to you by God. That's essence what the gospel teaches us. God gave his own son for us. 
While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, which we all know offhand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. What Peter is doing is expounding scripture to us and to his audience to show them salvation that God provides is only found in one, no other but Jesus alone. In Acts 4.12, he's reminded the audience again, there is no name that has been given under earth that man ought to be saved by the name of who? Jesus Christ. Brothers, I want to remind you, the gospel is not only found in the New Testament, where sometimes we think it's so easy for us to know, but the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament still teaches us about Jesus. We don't go to the Old Testament to find our way or to do what we want or to think for the Bible. The New Testament allows us to clearly see how this Old Testament gospel has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Peter preaches about Jesus. Turn with me to verse 34. We can read from verse 30 actually. He says, after quoting David, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to heads, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And, and of that we all are witness, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So basically, again, what Peter is doing is to remind us or to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. Actually, where what he does here is to take us back to God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the Lord makes a covenant with David and tells him, your son will sit on this throne forever. He was not Solomon. Solomon died. It was Jesus. That's why Matthew 1 begins with the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. To remind us, this is the one who was promised the king to rule forever and ever. It's not Solomon. That's why we read the, the New Testament makes meaning. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. His gospel does not change. Brothers, the gospel is preached by Peter so clearly. Drawing people to the essence of the scriptures, Jesus. To the object of the Bible, Jesus. What happens? What happens when Peter preaches such? Verse 37. We read, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The gospel convicts. 
The gospel is not preached and men are left the way they were. A brother in my church uses this example and he says, if a big truck, 16 wheels, knocks you down, you can't wake up and just do, you know, and you move on. He says, it can't happen unless you are something else, you're not a human being. You will be in pieces. Your life will change immediately you are knocked by that truck. You are either dead or you have been left with what? With all manner of wounds. You will not be able to walk and live the way you lived. And that is the gospel. The gospel does not leave us the way we were. The gospel crushes us. It transforms us. The gospel has effect in our lives. Preached faithfully, we don't seek to see, we don't preach the gospel that we may see. How many have come to Jesus so that we may count headcats? We preach with the confidence, though we might not see by face, God is at work. Amen. That's what the, you know, we are reminded in Mark 4. We are told in Mark 4, the farmer planted the seed. He went to bed. The seed grew day and night. He had no clue. But the seed was growing. We see the effect. There is a conviction. And then we see the response in verse 41. What does Peter remind them in verse 41? From, let's read from verse at eight, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. We preach the gospel, the gospel convicts people, people need solutions. We don't tell them, believe, and you will have this. We show them Jesus. Repent. That's what Peter tells them. Repent. And the moment they repent, we are told here, 3,000 souls were added to that church. We are all eager to see that, isn't it? I preach because I want people to, to be saved. I want our church to be filled with the people who love Jesus. But who does the work of adding to his church? The Spirit of God. God himself, not you. So what do we say about the health church? We say a health church is a church where men and women who have been forgiven of their sins through faith in Christ gather, but also a health church is built on faithful preaching. A health church is built on faithful preaching. If you yearn to see Christ, men becoming Christians, children getting saved, women getting saved, the gospel must be at the center of the ministry of your church. When Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. Jesus, how does he build his church? Through gospel proclamation. The Bible is opened. The Bible is read. The Bible is applied to the hearts of people. 
God works. Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds us, one plants, another does what? Waters. Who brings growth? God. Healthy churches are built on God's word. It's such a church where you'll find men and women who have a confidence in the Lord, who rely upon Jesus, who see their hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Their identity is defined in Jesus and not by having the things of the world. A health church is a church built on God's word. Now, when people are saved, our, our, our question in the next talking we ask ourselves, how then does a health church conduct itself? Because it does not end the moment we come to Jesus. Salvation doesn't end there. The Bible calls us to live out our lives for the glory and the honor of God. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God at work in you. How does, it, how does the life of a health church look like? Back with me from verse 42 to 47 in Acts 2. We read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So how is the life of the health church? One, there's a devotion to God. There's a devotion to God. That's what the, the, the scripture here is telling us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that has two implications. One is they devoted themselves to the teaching of men who were faithful to God. They devoted themselves. They saw the character, the confidence of these men. The life of these men was worthy to be alive to emulate, to follow. They were not men only saying the right things. They were men living out the right things they were teaching. Amen. They were not men saying, don't do as I do. Do as I say. It's common among many people. Among many pastors. Who say, you know I'm weak. So you understand me. Uh, nobody's perfect in this world. Fine. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. No one is perfect. 
But that cannot be an excuse for us to live a life that is contrary to the scriptures, at the same time calling people to live what we don't live. They had seen the sufferings of the apostles. They had seen the commitment of the apostles. They had seen a life of these men they lived that honored God. Brothers, before we talk about a man preaching right and faithfully, we, go, we got to see how these men's lives is lived out according to what they say, they proclaim. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells us who should be an elder, who should be a shepherd in the church, who should care for the sheep of God. If you look at those characteristics, many of them are character, the character of the man, than the gifting of the, the man. We run to the gift. This guy is sober, he's clever. He is passionate. Is this man faithful to his wife? Does he have one wife? We'll look at that tomorrow. Can he manage his household well? Is he a drunkard, a lover of money? We don't go to those stuff. We just want men who can make the big noise in the pulpit. And many times... Even that big noise is what we go to and we say, this guy is a gifted guy. Because he can make the greatest noise among all of us. So their devotion to the apostles' teaching, one has an understanding of the faith they had in these men. Of how they lived their lives. And they saw truly, these are men of God. Servants of the Most High. That's what 1 John reminds us in 1 John 4. When John says, test the spirits to know if the spirit is from who? Is it from God? The spirit is talking about is the man. Is the man preaching and proclaiming to be a preacher? Is he sent by God? How do we know? How does the Bible describe that individual? What we should look out for and what we should not look out for. A pastor should not be only gauged on the gift but on the character. You would rather have a faithful, godly man as a pastor who is not a flamboyant guy in the pulpit, who speaks easy English, he doesn't use big words, who loves God's people, he's there to mourn with those who are mourning, who does not have a big car, doesn't live in a big house, who seems to be the world standards, nothing, than having a man who has it all, but his life does not honor Jesus. So that's the first thing he reminds us, the man himself, the men who were there, they were faithful men. But these men also, they were not only morally upright, these men were faithful in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They devoted themselves to the teaching of these men. Brothers, let me tell you this. Faithful men <clears throat> won't come to your church just because it's arranged well. People seeking truth, 
They are not looking for you. They are not looking for your cleverness. They are not looking for your goodness. They are looking for the truth of God's word. They are not after you. They just want to be fed faithfully. These men were faithfully shepherds of the sheep of God. They were teaching. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.10 from 3.10 to 17 the gospel the scriptures are wise to make one have wisdom for what? For salvation. These men understood that. Salvation does not come in any way but in exposing God's people to the truth. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. They knew that. They committed themselves to that. Even though they were persecuted, even though they were rejected in the society and they became nothing, preaching Jesus was their job. Even when death was in their face, that was their job. Even when poverty was in their face, that was their job. They were not trying things. They had the actual stuff. They had the actual stuff. They preached. They saw conversions. 3,000. In chapter 4, they saw another 4,000. These men were persecuted. And they were told not to teach in the name of Jesus. What does Peter say in chapter 4? Is it good for, for us not to preach Jesus, but to, to give in to your fears or your threats? And they, saw, they said what? They will preach the gospel. You got to be confident with the gospel. A shepherd who has, is not confident in the gospel is not a good shepherd. You are not. That when the gospel challenges your life, you close that page. And you say, this is not me. This is not our church. This is not what God has called me to. We will see effect if our confidence is not rooted in our cleverness of twisting the gospel, is not rooted in our studies, but rooted in what God has said in his word. The disciples were faithful. And hence, the life of the church was devoted to God as the disciples on a day-to-day -day basis. They exposed God's word. And as these men saw God's power at work in the midst of them, as the Bible was preached, they devoted themselves to the Bible. A health church, primarily, number one, they devoted themselves to the Bible. Even where the Bible doesn't say the things they like, they know it still. The word of God. Now, brother in the morning was talking about ecclesiology when he was dealing with the issue of male leadership in the church. And we know how that has a big problem in our society. Okay? There are those who affirm a female what? Leadership. I've been with pastors. And we have talked about these things. 
Year in, year out, they never learn. They tell you, but God called my wife. I called your wife to be what? To be your wife, amen. <laughs> Not to be the pastor. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. That is contrary to the Bible. No matter how much she speaks in tongues, and she can cast out demons, she is known to be a pastor Amen. with all grace and love. That's not what the Bible, and the brother did it well, which really helped me with those, you know, feminine, it was called what? The masculine, uh, what are they called? Pronouns. Uh, pronouns. He, he, I've never seen that, bro, thank you. He, 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 not she, she, she. And we have had pastors who say, <clears throat> Paul hated women. <laughs> That's why he doesn't want women to do anything. Fiona is there. Is Fiona the pastor here? Do you call pastor? Is assistant pastor? <laughs> Godly women will know their space and their position in the Lord and they will be happy to serve Jesus where Jesus has called them to serve him. They will not run to places where Jesus has not called them to do the work. They devoted themselves to the Lord, to God's word, to obey it, to leave it out. And practically, we see they also, in that devotion to God, they devoted it to fellowship, which is a command from the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10. Do not neglect the meeting together. They loved each other. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread, to prayers. Because the Bible commands them. The Bible is the origin or the root of their life. They are not trying to figure out how they should live. The Bible defines their life. They pray. The Bible calls us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Matthew 16, the Lord teaches us how to pray. Philippians 4, do not be anxious of anything, but with the prayer and supplication, make your needs be known to God. The church met to pray. The church had healthy fellowship among themselves. There was genuine love among the members of the church. When John calls us, love one another as Christ has loved us. The church, a health church, there is love going on among people. It's not perfect. But people are loving one another. People are reaching out to one another. People are sharing with one another. They were sacrificially giving themselves and selling their properties to care for one another. We are living in a very consumerist society. Now people are saying, every man for himself and God for all of us. A very selfish way to define life. We say it's a jungle, isn't it? We are living in a jungle. So everyone must make sure how he makes it out. 
That's not, that's not health as Christians. When Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 4, this is what he tells them. You who are thieves, still no more, but work hard that you may have something to share with another. As you work, God has done this. That's your means of earning a livelihood, but also the Lord wants you to use what he has given you to care for their brother. There's a big problem. We have a big problem in Africa where many people sit back and they say, we'll get money from the West. People don't want to give. A brother tells you, I'm sick, I'm going to hospital. The first thing you want to do is to write a letter abroad. Instead of saying, how can I personally participate in helping this brother? We have become so selfish. The West is like our ATM, isn't it? People are not willing to give their tithe, their offerings, to care for the need among them. Mercy ministry. A brother is dying, you want to find out why are you dying first? Tell me why are you dying? Why can't you pay? There is no love. Health churches are characterized by love. Love for one another as the Bible commands us. It's a great means of evangelism. Jesus says in John 13, if you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. That's a means of evangelizing to the world. We are God's people. And John says this in 1 John 3, 16. This is love that he laid down his life for us. And he says, love one another. I always say and joke with my Reformed brothers that one of the greatest problems in the Reformed faith, especially back home, there is no love. There is so much head knowledge. People quote the Bible left and right, but they are not willing to come low and feel how a brother is feeling and mourn with a brother and help a brother, it's always we will pray for you. Come on. The Bible knows we will pray. James 2 says what about our faith? If this faith is not characterized and seen in our actions, it's dead. We are believing a lie. The church is not only known for the great proclamation of the Bible, but also in living out the same Bible it teaches. Paul tells Titus in Titus 2. He tells him to, to encourage people, to admonish people how they're supposed to live in their day-to-day -day lives. And in verse 10 he says, why should they live like that? So that they may make the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ attractive. To whom? To the unlooking world. To us ourselves. A health church loves Love binds us together. 
Love unites us together. Love encourages us because we are all going through difficult situations in this world. We need a brother's shoulder to lean on. We need a brother to look out for us. That's what Jesus has done. And that's what the Bible is calling us to do. But also, as the health church devotes to God, which we have already said, but also the health church devotes to one another. Our devotion is to God, and also our devotion is to one another. Loving one another, Romans 12, rejoice with those who are rejoicing, mourn with those who are mourning. Galatians 6, 9 to 10, do good to all, especially those in the house of faith. In Galatians 2, Paul tells the church, do not forget the poor among you. Don't forget them. That's what the Old Testament taught. Intentionally, you who are rich with big chunks of land, when you harvest, intentionally leave some things that the poor may come and do out and harvest. And we see that in the book of Ruth, when Boaz commands his workers to leave things for Ruth to come and pick and take home. A care for poor people. The Lord, in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their land. No one has commanded them to sell their land. They should do it sacrificially. They come and they say, this is all we have done. This is all we have sold and we are giving. And he's reminded, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And the Lord struck them dead. Why? 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord killed some and made some to be sick. Why? It's because the purpose of the cross of Jesus, as Ephesians 2 reminds us, it's for the unity of God's people. Paul says in Ephesians 2, the cross has brought down the stumbling wall, the wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. When we practice hatred, when we practice unbrotherly love, we are erecting that wall that Jesus on the cross brought down, and the Lord will not allow it. Even to his own, he will discipline. He will discipline. The church, a health church, devotes to God. A health church devotes to one another. But also lastly, we are told in verse 37, 47, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, what's the writer saying? Well, why does he, he? I don't think Luke is just telling us, hey, do you know this has happened in, in Jerusalem? I don't think that. I don't think that's what Luke is saying. Two things Luke is reminding us here. He uses the word favor, but also he uses the word what? Addition. A health church will be known. The favor here is not only men saying, oh, what a beautiful church. Guys who know the gospel. He's saying here, the testimony of the church will be known, will be seen. It will not hide. 
Like what Jesus says in Matthew. You cannot lit a lamp and put it under the bed. Christians, a health church is like a light on a hill that shines and everyone is able to do it, to see. It's a testimony of who Jesus is and how Jesus works in the midst of his people. And the question is, is that how your church is seen in the community? Is that how your church is seen by people, onlookers? Is that how your life is? Or people here, pastor so-and-so, oh, 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 if all Christians are like that, I will never get saved. Are you known to be a Christian, a faithful Christian? Is your church in its own setting up and doing of stuff, doing church, is it something that can attract men to Jesus? Are people seeing Jesus in your church? Or they are seeing men who are greedy, men who are after their own in this world? Are people seeing people who don't care, who don't love, who don't respond to the community? Is Jesus seen through your church? Remember what Peter says in, second, in 1 Peter 2.12. Peter calls us and says, live a godly life among pagans. What will happen? On the day of Jesus' coming, they will do it. They will give praise to God. The, our testimony of who, what Christ has done for us is a means by which God is known to be working among his people. Our salvation is not taken for granted. People see transformation in the communities we live. They see where our hearts are as God's people. They know whether we want them to know Jesus or not to know Jesus. I was watching the American gospel at some point where it's called who this guy? Kresh? Uh, Nabil? Yeah? Kresh Nabil. Uh, how he was explaining and saying he was in university and he had people, Christians, living with him who never told him about what? Jesus. And he says it's either they did not believe in their Jesus or they did not care if he goes where? To hell. That's the posture. When we don't live for Jesus, when we don't proclaim Jesus, that is it. We don't care if people perish. Or we have no confidence in this Jesus. Probably you are told, come to Jesus and you will give you a car and the car has not arrived. And so this Jesus doesn't work. A health church will have a health testimony among the people that where God has Put that church. But lastly, God is at work in a health church. God is at work in saving sinners in a health church. There is addition going on. God is building his kingdom on earth. Men are hearing the gospel. God is raising faithful men. Men are coming to Jesus. Addition is happening. Is happening. Brother, don't be deceived. Because I've heard this so much. That you know people don't like Jesus. That's why, that's why good churches are going to remain small churches forever. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. Be faithful in preaching Jesus. And the Lord himself will add it to his ship. 
Some of you might, you have been probably a pastor for many years and maybe your church is not even 20 people. You have to ask yourself, have I been preaching the gospel? Have I been preaching the truth? Don't sink into this notion of health churches are always with 10 people, 15 people. We preach for people to come to Jesus. And God has promised, whoever come to me, I will not do it. Cast them away. Labor hard. Labor faithfully. And the Lord will serve. Many times I tell people, when they complain, I've been 10 years and I have only 20 people, I tell them, examine your preaching and examine your life. Stop complaining. Examine your life, examine your preaching. Have you been faithful to the Lord? That's not to say every big church is a gospel-centered what? Church. No. There are blind people leading blind people to hell in big churches. So the mark of a health church when to count about numbers is not the numbers. It's faithfulness to the gospel. Get that. If the numbers are adding because you are preaching the truth, praise be to who? To God. If your numbers are adding and not preaching the truth, you are a blinding man leading blind men to hell. Don't Find a comfort if you are here, your church is big, and you say, amen, it's the Lord blessing it. Might the devil bringing you people. The health of the church is founded on the truth of the gospel. A health church witnesses the gospel and relies on God for growth. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. And the Lord, it has pleased you to place us in various congregations, wherever we are. Thank you, Lord, for calling those who amongst us are pastors and preachers of the gospel. We might be in small or big congregations, which are faithful, Lord, we thank you. And also, Lord, we do pray for ourselves, all of us seated here. Help us that we may keep, we may keep it always faithful to the gospel. May we not seek human wisdom, cunning ways. May we not be drawn away by false teachers and what they do and seek to build, to participate in the building of your church in crooked ways, Lord. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, equip all of us that we may be found to be faithful teachers. Help us to endure through the truth. Help us, Lord, to find your word sufficient with no error that we are not preaching dreams and visions, but the Bible, we read it, we study it, we obey it, we proclaim it in all its Entirety, Lord. Bless all of us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.